With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It speaks about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Mr. President, I have a brother about 14 years old. A man hired him for me and I heard of him no more. He went and sold him to McGree and they've been working him in prison for 12 months. I asked him to let me have him, but he, he won't let him go. For a period of nearly 80 years, between the Civil War and World War II, black Southerners were no longer slaves, but they were not yet free.
In one of the most shameful and little-known chapters of American history, generations of black Southerners were forced to labor against their will. From almost the first moment, white Southerners were responding to try to put African Americans back into a position as close to slavery as they possibly could. The Old South and what was quickly becoming the New South could not proceed without uh, the work of African Americans. But if you've had something for free in the past, you don't necessarily want to pay for it now. It was a straight, simple, exploitative system. There was only power, there was only force, and there was only brutality. What happened in that period of time was so much more terrible than anything most Americans recognize or understand today. The depth of poverty, the inability of African Americans to access any of the mechanisms of wealth achievement and growth, they're all rooted in this terroristic kind of regime that, that existed in so many places. Their ability to have what we call the American dream. That is what has been stolen from black folks all through the South. And that legacy has to be understood so that people will be able to speak to it and give our ancestors voice. about 14 years old. A man hired him for me and I heard of him no more. He went and sold him to McGree and 
They've been working him in prison for 12 months. I asked him to let me have him, but he, he won't let him go. For a period of nearly 80 years, between the Civil War and World War II, black Southerners were no longer slaves, but they were not yet free. In one of the most shameful and little-known chapters of American history, generations of black Southerners were forced to labor against their will. From almost the first moment, white Southerners were responding to try to put African Americans back into a position as close to slavery as they possibly could. The Old South and what was quickly becoming the New South could not proceed without uh, the work of African Americans. But if you had something for free in the past, you don't necessarily want to pay for it now. It was a straight, simple, exploitative system. There was only power, there was only force, and there was only brutality. What happened in that period of time was so much more terrible than anything most Americans recognize or understand today. The depth of poverty, the inability of African Americans to access any of the mechanisms of wealth achievement and growth, they're all rooted in this terroristic kind of regime that, that existed in so many places. Their ability to have what we call the American dream. That is what has been stolen from black folks all through the South. And that legacy has to be understood so that people will be able to speak to it and give our ancestors voice. My name is Sharon Malone, and my family is originally from Wilcox County, Alabama. My father was born in 1893. As a child, I never knew why Dad didn't share many of the stories growing up in the rural South. There was so little that I actually knew about, you know, the generations beyond my parents. And I realized, I said, I don't, why don't I know these stories and why don't I know who those people are? The African Americans are innately wired to want to know who we are. It's almost like being an adopted child. We have no understanding of not only what we have endured, but what we have survived. Freedom must have felt glorious to those who'd never known it. With the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, four million former slaves could embark on new lives with no one in charge but themselves. 
and what they desired more than anything was independence. They wanted independent from white owners, they wanted their own churches, they wanted their own schools, they wanted freedom to move. African Americans after emancipation are looking at the potential not only to enjoy and receive freedom, but to live it. They're deeply committed to reaffirming marriage vows. They're deeply committed to reconstituting families. Ezekiel Archie, born into slavery, was six when freedom came. His mother moved the family, Zeke, his two brothers and a sister, from Georgia to Alabama, away from the old plantation and toward a new future. African Americans were willing to work very hard and exploit themselves in the same way that immigrants who have come to this country have exploited themselves and their families with long work days. They were willing to do that, but they wanted to own their own land, they wanted to control those hours. They wanted to be the ones to decide. John Davis was born a dozen years after the war. He grew up in freedom, working hard on an Alabama farm rented by his parents. There was a tremendous motivation and desire to integrate into American life. Green Cottenham, born in 1885 was also the son of an Alabama farmer. He came of age in a nation that was increasingly urban, industrial, and modern. This is a photo of George Cottingham. He's my great-grandfather. He was actually Green Cottingham's first cousin. How hopeful my Cottingham ancestors must have been about bright futures for their family. These were hard-working, honest people. But freedom had come at a tremendous cost. The war devastated the Southern economy, which had supported one of the wealthiest aristocracies in the world. The cotton economy was in complete shambles. The fields had been burned, the cotton gins had been destroyed. Equipment that was necessary for the production of cotton was, didn't exist anymore. Uh, but also, the primary engine of the economy, of the cotton economy, that being the labor of slaves, was lost. In the five major cotton states of the Deep South, nearly half of all capital, nearly half of all investment was in human beings. So when those human beings were confiscated, when the investment was transferred, in, in essence, from slaveholders to the people themselves, that meant a huge loss of capital to southern slaveholders, to the people who controlled the economy of the South. A tiny slaveholding elite had owned the majority of the region's four million slaves. Among them was Lucinda Comer, a widow. After the war, she and her sons oversaw the family's enterprises in cotton, lumber, and corn. I'm the great-great-granddaughter of B.B. Comer, who was the governor of Alabama, and the great-great-niece of J.W. Comer. The things that I heard about the Comer men, especially B.B. Comer, were about their entrepreneurial spirit and 
being self-made men, there was never a fool or a coward, it was said in um, the Comer family. Emancipation turned the former slaveholding world upside down. The simple reality of people that they had once owned now were entitled to the same fruits of their labor, the same ability to look a white person in the eye, a man or a woman, and to demand equal respect, to be called by one's first and last names, uh, challenged everything to, the, to the, the bitter core of white people's souls. You have a group of people who are accustomed to have people serve them. Now, suddenly, these people are free. They own guns. You'd be as wary as hell. Uh, because what you're worried is that uh, people are going to take revenge. You also are worried that people aren't going to do any work anymore. Most of the South's eight million whites had not owned slaves. Poverty was widespread, and about a third of whites were illiterate. Those individuals see blacks moving around, trying to get land, trying to improve themselves as competitors. They see a zero-sum game in which they're going to lose the more that blacks gain. These whites aligned with leaders of the former Confederacy, aided by President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor. They formed vigilante groups to attack and intimidate blacks. The violence grew widespread. In the spring of 1866, Congress intervened. Over the objections of the president, it launched an era known as Radical Reconstruction. At the beginning of Reconstruction, there was a tremendous federal will to both bring the South into submission, but also to protect African-American civil rights. Passed in 1866, the 14th Amendment recognized the citizenship of all freed people. In 1870, the 15th Amendment was passed, which upheld the right of black men to vote. Reconstruction was an attempt to create a country in which it would be possible to have a biracial and equal citizenship. Reconstruction gave African Americans for the first time across the South the opportunity to serve on juries, to be witnesses in trial, to serve as judges. It also made possible an entire generation of black politicians across the South, almost as many as 1,500 serving through the end of the 19th century. Reconstruction governments in many parts of the South succeeded in passing new social legislation, creating the South's first free public schools. But white resistance to biracial government in the South intensified, and national political support began to wane. By 1874, voters had shifted the balance of power in Congress, allowing for the South's return to local control. There is no sustained federal presence in the South really after 1874. What they come away with is that a sense that this is a really violent situation and that there's not much we can do about it. And there's not much perhaps we even should do about it. African-Americans seeking freedom could count on less and less help from the federal government, less and less help from sympathetic northerners, 
and they could count on more and more and more animosity and attack from Southern whites. I grew up in a black part of Mississippi, and I went to schools that were 60, 75% black all, all through my childhood. That was in the 1970s. What I learned about the Emancipation Proclamation was the most simplistic version of it, that, that it brought an end to slavery. I also was taught, as most Americans were in some way, that the end of slavery unleashed this population of people who were ill-equipped for freedom. And that was all offered up in some respect as an explanation for the repressive things that were then done to African Americans, even the repressive things that I knew about. What I came to realize was that that fundamentally didn't happen. With the end of Reconstruction, the nature of both crime and punishment in the South changed dramatically. In state after state and county after county, new laws targeted African Americans and effectively criminalized black life. It was a crime in the South for a farm worker to walk beside a railroad. It was a crime in the South to speak loudly in the company of white women. It was a crime to sell the products of your farm after dark. Anything from spitting or drinking or being found to be uh, drunk in public or loitering in public spaces could result um, in confinement. So uh, there was an over-exaggeration um, of African-American criminality during this time period. It's not to absolve all prisoners from having committed crimes, but there were many trumped-up charges. One of the most infamous set of laws to come out of this period were the pig laws passed in Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, enhancing penalties for what had been previously misdemeanor offenses um, to now felony offenses. In Mississippi, theft of a pig worth as little as a dollar could mean five years in prison. In Tennessee, Hard labor might result from stealing an eight-cent fence ring. But the most powerful, the most damaging of all of these laws were the vagrancy statutes. In every southern state, you became a criminal if you could not prove at any given moment that you were employed. Under slavery, most black crime was punished by slaveholders, leaving the courts to discipline whites. Now, only about 10% of those arrested were white. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that white people are not committing crimes in the South? We know that's not true. Southern states had a history of placing prisoners with industries that would bear the cost of guarding and housing them in exchange for their labor. Now, states also began to charge fees, renting prisoners to companies by the month. The highest rates were for the strongest workers and longest sentences. When you go to the 13th Amendment, one of the fascinating things about the text of that amendment is that it says that slavery is abolished 
except in the case of a punishment for a crime. And within that wiggle room, what you see in it is that there's still the possibility of extending slavery, as it were, by another name. person. 
Negro labor can be made exceedingly profitable in manufacturing iron and in rolling mills, provided there is an overseer, a southern man, who knows how to manage Negroes. He laid out some of the first railroad lines that would run across Alabama. In many respects, he was the father of southern industrialization, particularly in the deep, deep south. Milner's vision triggered decades of rapid industrial growth. After emancipation, industrialists replaced slaves with convicts, acquiring thousands from state and county government. You can't drive free labor the same way that you can force prisoners to mine five tons of coal a day. And this is why people like Milner wanted prisoners in his coal mines. He saw them as a great source of profit, and he didn't have to worry about labor disputes. We would leave the cells around 3 o'clock a.m. and return at 8 o'clock p.m., going the distance of three miles to rain or snow. To describe the conditions in a coal mine at this time, to say that they're primitive, is, you can't even imagine it. This is a place where, for weeks or months at a time, men might never see daylight. The mine was often filled with standing water around their ankles and their feet. They had to drink from that water. Disease ran rampant through these mines. They were incredibly dangerous places to work, being subjected to violent explosions, poisonous gases that were released as coal fell from the walls. In addition to the falling coal itself, whipping, keeping people chained up, um, brutal kinds of physical torture, and mental abuse are the norm. A lot of the things that kept people in control under slavery are amplified under this convict system. Zeke Archie was one of about 500 convicts at the Pratt Mines near Birmingham, nearly half the company's workforce. They were overseen by J.W. Comer, the former slaveholder, whose enterprises now included convict mining. That Comer's a hard man. I've seen him. image for me. He'd go off 
after an escaped man one day and dig his grave the same day. Exposés of the convict labor system described it as worse than slavery. Slaves had been a significant long-term investment. A convict could be rented for as little as $9 a month. It was never in the economic interest of a slave owner to kill his own slaves or to abuse them so terribly that they couldn't work anymore. So their economic value protected them in certain ways. After the Civil War, someone working these kinds of forced laborers uh, would push them to the very limits of human endurance. We are the men who do the work. Look at the white men. How many are cutting five or four ton coal per day? They are few. Convict leasing was a source of labor where you could realize the maximum return at a minimum social cost. The feeding, of course, was next to nothing. Uh, health was next to nothing. Convict miners cost as much as 50 to 80% less than free miners and could be worked six days a week. Their presence allowed companies to depress wages and resist unions. When one could obtain black labor at almost no cost, the profits for that form of business were enormous. In Florida, prisoners extracted gum and resin from tall pines and transformed it into turpentine. In Georgia, they hauled wet clay from riverbanks molding it into the millions of bricks needed for new buildings and homes. From Texas to Louisiana, convicts forced their way through acres of virgin forest, harvesting timber and building railroads. In all, more than 15,000 prisoners worked in southern industry in 1886. And that number was rising quickly. many labor camps, as many as a third of male convicts were boys younger than 16. Girls and women were also forced into labor. Over 90% of convict laborers in Georgia were African-American men. Uh, the next highest percentage would obviously be uh, white men, but African-American women were also utilized in these various tasks, in manual labor, black women are working in brickyards, in turpentine camps, in mining camps, farms, in lumber yards. Convict leasing becomes a new form of economic development in the South and a ubiquitous form of punishment uh, for Southerners as the criminal justice system expanded itself. And sweeps would take place all throughout the South, whether it was for a dice game, whether it was for an altercation, whether it was for being mouthy or uppity. The record of thousands upon thousands of people arrested in this way is everywhere in the South. In the fall, when it was time to pick cotton, huge numbers of black people are arrested in all of the cotton-growing counties. There are 
surges and arrests in counties in Alabama in the days before, coincidentally, a labor agent from the coal mines in Birmingham is coming to town that day to pick up whichever county convicts are there. Some charges were serious, but more than two-thirds of all state prisoners at the time of Zeke Archie's arrest, including Archie, were convicted under vague charges of burglary and larceny. County prisoners, too, were sent to the mines. For often trivial offenses, they faced the real possibility of death. In some Alabama prison camps, convicts died at a rate of 30 to 40 percent a year. And this, this system is one that I think in many ways needs to be understood as brutal in a social sense, but fiendishly rational in an economic sense. Because where else could one take a black worker and work them literally to death after slavery? And when that worker died, one simply had to go and get another convict. continued to grow, reaching 19,000 people by 1890. Nearly 90% of those held were African-American. When folded into national statistics, the concentration of black prisoners seemed to reflect an alarming rise in black crime. So as early as 1890, African-Americans are almost three times overrepresented in the prison population. The general population is 12%, but the nation's prisons a population of blacks is 30%. So there are many important implications and long-term consequences for this convict leasing system. Not only is it so oppressive, but when you have an overwhelmingly black prison population, it cements that relationship between criminality and race in people's minds to the degree that it's seen as something inherent. Southern editorialists, sociologists, politicians are all saying that the statistics prove that black people are a criminal race and that freedom had been a mistake. If you were to ask most Southerners, white Southerners, uh, what they thought of African Americans in the 1850s, the 1860s, even into the 1870s, one profile would have been of people who were loyal, dutiful, trustworthy. Those same people in the 1880s and by the 1890s have been demonized. They no longer are trustworthy. They no longer have the capacity for citizenship. By the 1890s, white voters had reversed the civil rights gains made during Reconstruction. New state constitutions kept blacks out of voting booths and limited funding for black schools. Racial segregation was mandated by law. They do this because it's important to remind black people day after day after day, minute after minute, that they have a place in this society and that that place is subordinate. So what that means 
that when a black person is walking down the street and a white person walks towards them, they step into the gutter. My name is Barbara Jean Belisle. I was born in Birmingham in 1936. You had to stay in your place. Now, my daddy was the one who was daring. He used to be called that uppity nigger by white folks because he believed that we were just as good as anybody else. He's a smart man. He was one of the first black men in this area to register to vote. That was a lot of times front loads of KKK folks would pass by the house. We had made white folks mad about something. He wouldn't let my mother work. He, she went to clean up a house one time and she went over to pick up and she was cleaning out some the, the cabinets down there on her knees trying to clean out a He told her, you're not going back to clean up your own cabinet. And that's the kind of man he was. But he's another story, though, and I have to talk about him at another time. Segregation was not only mandated by southern states, it was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in an 1896 ruling, Plessy versus Ferguson. And after that, white Southerners, white legislatures, never had any reservation about imposing the most severe, the most re repressive restrictions on black life. Ezekiel Archie was scheduled for release on February 6, 1887, at the age of 28. But he was not free. A new indictment for reasons unknown is pending. This letter is not all I could write, but my condition will not permit. Fate seems to curse the convict. Death seems to summon us hence. The 19th century came to a close, and for many decades to come, the possibility of freedom was overshadowed by the constant threat of forced labor and violence. Decades after the Civil War, the nation was reunited, but the place of black Americans within it seemed more uncertain than ever. Many whites in the South are completely indifferent about whether black people live or die. They want to see them in their place. They want to see them as an exploitable system of labor. They want to see them as an affirmation of their racial superiority. And if they don't fulfill that role, then to hell with them. And then we'll forget this. I'm nine years old, going from West Palm Beach to Tampa, where, where my mom's from, to see my grandma. And we had a brand new Oldsmobile. And a cop stopped her in Kissimmee, Florida. And the way he talked to my mom, he gave her a ticket for speeding, and she was not speeding. It was just because he could do it. You follow know I me? Mean? And the ticket cost a one-month salary. 
And my mama had to restrain me because I wanted to get after this white boy like I could not believe at nine years old. When you have to just kind of just tuck it in, like my mom would say, Bernard, you got to just stop because we may not get out of here. And you can see the terror in her eyes. You follow me? Because we in little old Kissimmee in the 50s. September 1901, the dawn of a new century. John Davis, now 23, and renting his own Alabama farm, is on his way to Goodwater about 18 miles away. His wife was ill, being cared for there by her parents. It was harvest time, and Davis would have been careful to avoid trouble eager to return safely to his own small patch of cotton. But trouble found him in the form of Robert Franklin, a local merchant and constable. Bob Franklin said, nigga, have you gotten money? When are you going to pay the money you owe me? I don't owe you any money. Convicts were not the only Southerners being forced into hard labor. Throughout the South, many thousands of African Americans were tied to white employers through various forms of debt. You get a person in debt, you continually keep them in debt, you never let them work at all, and you control their labor. Any kind of relationship where you use debt as the fulcrum to extract labor, that's illegal. You violated the peonage law. Peonage, or debt servitude, was outlawed by the federal government just after the Civil War. Peonage comes from the word peon, or Mexican peon. It's serfdom, it's peasantry. Ironically enough, the United States made peonage illegal only as a result of the acquisition of New Mexico. And the federal government didn't want to introduce Mexican peonage into the American, the American legal system. Uh, and so in 1867, the Congress made peonage illegal. Nearly 40 years later, in 1903, a federal judge in Alabama raised an alarm about allegations of peonage in his jurisdiction. Witnesses have reported that a systematic scheme of depriving Negroes of their liberty in Alabama has been practiced for some time. Judge Thomas Good Jones was a former Confederate officer and two-time governor of Alabama. Viewed as something of a moderate, he'd been appointed to the federal court by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt becomes president in 1901 after the assassination of William McKinley. He viewed himself as uh, an egalitarian person uh, on the side of both business and the working man. He believed that exposure of the sins of society and exposure of the sins of commerce and industrialism would lead to their eradication. Uh, and he believed that for the factories of the North and he believed that for the racial abuses of the South. The president authorized a federal investigation into peonage in the Alabama counties of Shelby, Coosa, and Tallapoosa. 
Now, they thought that these were exceptional circumstances. They were out of the ordinary. And I think that the Roosevelt administration and the Roosevelt Justice Department thought that it could score points is too easy a word, but that it could, by, by making a stand in this way, it could accomplish quite a lot and have a <coughs> impact that was pretty large. Federal peonage inquiries were also underway in Georgia and Florida. In Alabama, witnesses were called to appear before the federal grand jury to determine if there was enough evidence to go to trial. Prosecuting the case was U.S. Attorney Warren S. Reese, born in Alabama just after the Civil War. Now, I have lived in this state my entire life for 37 years, and I have never comprehended until now the extent of this present method of slavery through this peonage system. Southern progressives were not free of the racism that Southern conservatives had, or Northern progressives were not free of that either. Um, but they did think that there were some things that were just beyond the pale. And so when stories, horrific, sensationalized stories of African-American slavery came to light, they were precisely the kind of thing that we, as a modern, civilized nation, should not engage in. Among those testifying was John Davis, freed hastily as word of the investigation spread. Bob Francis said, when are you going to pay the money you owe me? He said, I don't owe you any money. Nearly 18 months had passed since he'd been stopped by Franklin, the local constable. His testimony echoed that of other victims. Like Davis, they were falsely accused and quickly convicted. They were sentenced and charged fines and court fees, which they couldn't pay. They could do nothing as local whites paid the court and took control of them. John Davis was bought from the court by Bob Franklin and then resold for profit. Said we're gonna carry you over to Mr. Chase's. Told him I didn't know anything about it. And he said, We know. John Pace was the Baron of Tallapoosa County, Alabama. He had been the sheriff of the county in the 1880s. Uh, he then amassed a substantial amount of land, the most fertile land along the Tallapoosa River in his part of Alabama. He was quite a character, just a six foot two, 230 pound man who had frostbitten toes and was supposed to be very ill. And when he walked the earth shook, they said, I bought the Negro John Davis from Bob Franklin, a constable of Tallapoosa. I explained to Davis that he would be confined on my farm, just as I confined county convicts. Mr. Pace asked, will you work 10 months with me? And I signed a contract. These contracts gave employers the right to whip, confine, and even trade workers, as long as the debt was deemed unpaid.
tuned into Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Grant, giving voice to the black truth of America. Our Common Ground, broadcasting free, bold, and black. Each Saturday, 10 p.m. Injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. the best of pushback talk radio. The Alpha Show, only at TruthWorks Network, Fridays, 10 p.m. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. Join India Declare, real, raw, and right now, Fridays and Saturdays, 11 a.m. It's the I Declare Friday and Saturday brunch. If you want your news real and your talk raw, and right now it's Friday and Saturday, India Declare at the I Declare brunch. Real raw and right now, India is live. Friday and Saturday morning, 11 a.m. The I Declare show with India Declare on Blog Talk Radio. India Declare real raw and right now. A politician, not a prophet. And that is true. I've made that argument myself, but it is only true to an extent because he did not draw on political sentiment when he got elected. He drew on something deeper. He drew on a spiritual reality and when he did, then he took on a certain spiritual responsibility. When you hear people like Mitch McConnell saying that if they do this, this will poison the well forever. Well, I'll take your threat and I'll raise you to shove it in your behind. Serious talk for serious signs. Truth Warriors at TruthWorks Network. Truth Warriors at TruthWorks Network. Spirit Matters Talk Radio. Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew B. Johnson. The Alpha Show with Alpha, your host. Straight out of Chicago. Just a damn talk radio. Advanced urban progressive talk radio at TruthWorks Network. Serious talk radio if you dare. Truth Warriors at TruthWorks Network. Why every time you see me, you want to mess with me? I'm proud of it. It's South Sudan. Give me some pride, Lord. Make me feel proud of myself. Let me walk 
Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Our Common Ground. spoken about did I receive one cent of costs 
nor was I paid in any other way by Mr. Pace or anybody else for trying these cases. And after I worked that 10 months, my time was out on the 10th day of July, 1902. I told him, my time is out this morning. He said, go ahead to work. And he said, if I don't go to work, he'll put me in the river down. Disrupted as well. 
what had begun as a principled investigation that was probably going to go nowhere was turning into a potential political catastrophe for the Roosevelt administration. Mr. President, I have a brother about 14 years old. A man hired him from me and I've heard of him no more. Among black Southerners, reports that peonage was being prosecuted sparked a very different outcry. A flood of letters, many of them addressed to the president. At the National Archives today, there's more than 30,000 pages of this kind of material that document the arrest, the subjugation, the punishment, the mistreatment, the profit that was made off of the forced labor of armies and armies of people. He has done nothing wrong for them to keep him in chains. So I'd write to you to help me get my poor brother. Please let me hear from you at once. Gary Kinsey. My name is Bernard William Kinsey. Gary Kinsey is a cousin. When I held this letter, uh, and it hadn't, I mean, here you holding Kara's legacy. When you began to connect with your family, you could put yourself back into 1900 and how difficult it was for anybody to push up against the system. Dear son, I have a little girl that has been kidnapped. Wow, me. One of the southerners now my attention was called to a condition of affairs in existence there, so appalling in advice and cruelty. They just beat so sores on me every day. They started to whip me one day. These letters are incredibly poignant. A lot of them, even though they're not written in the language of rights, do refer to the 13th Amendment. They are aware that they have a right not to be enslaved, and they're calling upon the government to protect them from slavery that they thought was supposed to be over. And there was a tremendous hope, it's absolutely evident through these letters, that a huge population of African Americans believed that the president was finally coming to their rescue. Roosevelt granted a pardon to the Cosbys, 
three years later, in 1906, he also pardoned John W. Pace. Pace never went to prison, and the federal government turned a blind eye to the forced laborers he continued to hold on his farm. The federal government really pulled back from doing these cases in a big way. There was a lack of will to do what would be and prove to be very hard work of actually uprooting the tremendous systems of involuntary servitude that existed in the South. And I don't think that the federal government had that political will.
I didn't know that the sheriff's department could sell free black people to corporations, steel plants, and gold mines. It wasn't in the history books. We didn't know. Thirty years have passed, but except for the electric lights, Ezekiel Archie would have easily recognized the condition Green Cotton Man now faced. Above ground, though, Birmingham was becoming the region's largest industrial center. Changing. 
county governments continue to profit from renting convicts to private industry. But the growing numbers of states in what was billed as reform began to use prisoners on state-run enterprises. Chained together, prisoners on road crews became an icon of the modernizing South. Perversely, one of the biggest motivating factors behind the creation of the chain gangs were that Southerners all across the region were frustrated that the roads of the South were the most terrible, imaginable roads in America. The economy couldn't grow effectively. Crops were lost in the fields simply because the roads were so terrible. The conditions for chain gang prisoners were equally horrific as they were for convict leave prisoners. They were subject to the same modes of brutality, the same beatings, the same standards of meager health care, meager forms of shelter, clothing, food. Chain gangs continued deep into the 20th century, along with other forms of forced labor, including death peonage and sharecropping. A sharecropper will agree to work for a percentage of the proceeds of the sale of the cotton crop. Sharecroppers had to take out loans in order to survive and in order to bring the crop in during the year. 50, 70, 90% interest rates were not uncommon all throughout the South in relation to sharecropping finance of the, the basic necessities that they needed to get through a year. So that system is going to put African Americans in a position where upward mobility is essentially impossible for most of them. Sharecropping also engulfed growing numbers of whites, including immigrants. But without legal or political rights, black sharecroppers were especially vulnerable. Millions of black people in remote parts of the South could not leave the farms they were being held on. If they did, they were subject to arrest by the sheriff, and if they were arrested, they would then be returned to the very same farms, oftentimes in chains, receiving nothing. Sharecropping is not slavery, but it did become, for an enormous population of people, forced labor. Families stayed intact, probably within a two-mile radius of where they were born. Mothers, fathers, cousins, grandparents, everybody stayed. If you knew but the mere fact of leaving exposed you to the danger of being caught up in this system. It made you stay. You knew what would happen if you stepped off. I grew up in Monticello, Georgia, which is a small town about 90 miles south of Atlanta. My paternal grandmother was the daughter of John S. Williams. He died long before I was born. But I heard from my uncles, from my father, from people who knew him that he was a wonderful man. He was well respected in the community. In 1921, almost 18 years after the Peonage trials, federal investigators visited the Williams farm to follow up on reports that he was holding peons. There's a group of black men out in the field. The men are obviously terrified, unwilling to say almost anything. They're emaciated. They clearly have been terribly abused. John Williams suddenly appears. 
he pleads that he didn't know this was against the law, that he'll do better. His intentions were good, very apologetic to these federal officials. And they leave. And he doesn't know what they're going to do. He knows they found evidence that he was holding these people in slavery. But he talks to his foreman, Clyde Manning, and says, as the court transcript said, we've got to do away with these boys. The family story was that he had worked prisoners on his farm, that they were hardened criminals and they had been put in the penitentiary for a long time. And one night, a lot of the prisoners tried to escape. And he, along with other farmers who were working these men, tracked them down and in the process of recapturing them, killed some of them. Then sometime later, the story came to light for me. It was, of course, totally different from the story that I had heard. Williams and Manning, the black foreman, systematically hunted and murdered 11 black workers. Some were bludgeoned. Others were weighted down with chains and forced into a nearby river. Another was made to dig his own grave. They did it in the most horrific ways that you can imagine that I really can't talk about. Um, I get, I get, I just get um, so emotional. I think about not just the fact that these men were murdered, but the cruelty with which it was, it was carried out. Um, and that's what's hardest for me to imagine and hardest to accept. came to light only because a little boy was fishing down by the creek where they'd thrown some of the bodies, and one of the bodies came up. In the spring of 1921, Williams and Manning each faced an all-white jury in a Georgia state court. Both were found guilty and given life sentences. Within a decade, both had died in prison. Williams was the first Southern white man since 1877 be indicted for the first-degree murder of an African-American, it would not happen again until 1966. The following year, an expose of peonage in Florida inflamed readers because the victim, 22-year-old Martin Tabert, was white. A traveler from North Dakota, Tabert was picked up in a sweep in rural Florida, charged with vagrancy and sold to a lumber company. He died soon after at the hands of a brutal overseer. First he whipped him on his bare back 30 or 40 times. Hayward then kept lying there, so the boss continued to whip him another 30 or 40 times with a heavy leather lash. Tabor crawled to his feet, and the guard began pursuing him through the camp, whipping him as they ran. Finally, after almost 150 lashes, Habert made it back to the cock that he had in a simple cabin somewhere, collapsed into his bed, and never stood up again. The outcry over Tabert's death helped to end state leasing in Florida. Shortly after, in 1928, a similar case led Alabama to remove its last prisoners from the coal mines. But these changes had little impact as late as 1930, roughly half of all African Americans, or 4.8 million people, still lived in the Black Belt region of the South. 
the vast majority were almost certainly trapped in some form of exploitative labor arrangement. For those African Americans who remain in the South through the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s even, the conditions that they're facing are often desperate, and they find themselves more and more vulnerable if they try to rise up and create some sense of protest against the conditions that they face. In the fall of 1932, the United States underwent a profound political change, marked by the election of a new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a distant cousin of Theodore. Much as Teddy Roosevelt was seen as something of an advocate for African Americans, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a hundred times that. African Americans are becoming an ever-increasingly important part of the Democratic political coalition. More African Americans are moving north, they're joining unions, they're joining the NAACP in unprecedented numbers. African Americans who are involved in unions, members of churches, and African Americans who are publishing newspapers and magazines are all finding ways to bring their influence to bear on the federal government and saying, do your job. We're talking about constitutional rights here. We're talking about citizens who are being abused here. Do your job or don't expect our support. In December 1941, the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor brought the United States into the Second World War. President Roosevelt convened a meeting of the cabinet at the White House to discuss preparations to fight this war against Japan and Germany. The president asked, what are the things that the Japanese are going to attack us for in the course of the war that are problematic? Someone said, the treatment of the Negro. Months earlier, the Department of Justice had established a civil rights section, but its focus was on labor issues not racial equality. Now, the president asked his attorney general if this unit might be used to demonstrate a commitment to racial change. And what stands at the intersection of African-American rights and labor rights? Peonage and involuntary servitude. They can't just attack segregation head-on during World War II because they still need no, right. the white Southerners who are part of the Democratic right Coalition. But they did sincerely believe that these peonage cases were pretty bad and they required a response. Mrs. Roosevelt, I am a colored mother and I need your help. In the decades since the Pace trial, the federal government had paid little attention to the continued complaints of forced labor sent to the White House, the Department of Justice, and the NAACP. My boy answered an advertisement in our post paper for a job. They are being guarded all night by armed guards and not allowed to write home. Nearly 80 years had passed since the United States ratified the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, in December 1941, President Roosevelt took steps to finally enforce it. Just five days after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt's Attorney General issued Circular 3591, 
It said that federal attorneys were to aggressively prosecute any case of involuntary servitude or slavery, not only those defined as peonage. He says whether they're being held there because of a threat of imprisonment or out of violence, whatever the mechanism is that is holding people in slavery, you should go after it. And he says this is part of the war effort. These cases are important because we need to make sure that African Americans feel like their rights are being taken care of. And within months, there was a prosecution underway of a man in Texas who had been holding an African American worker as a slave for almost 15 years. He was convicted by a federal jury in 1942 and went to federal prison. I mark that as the technical end of slavery in America. The records are incomplete but it's estimated that in the 80 years following the Civil War, as many as 800,000 people had faced the South's corrupt system of justice. Huge numbers of those arrested were forced into involuntary servitude. Some, including Viola Cosley's son, Marion, found freedom. On January 7, 1943, he enlisted as a private in the U.S. Army one of more than 2.5 million African-Americans who registered for service during the Second World War. Green Cottenham, arrested in 1908, might have served in the First World War, but by the Second World War, he would have been in his 50s. But Green never made it out of the Birmingham prison mine. We don't know the exact details of the life that he led in the stockade or underground, but he survived five months before becoming ill. He went to see the doctor on August the 2nd, 1908. He never went back to the mine. Thirteen days later, Green Cottenham died. He is among more than 9,000 prisoners, known to have died while leased to industry by southern states and counties. We want to think of some of these atrocities as things that happened occasionally, but you can imagine the turmoil if at any time your child could be picked up, never to be seen again, how that would impact a whole segment of people, how they view their opportunities um, and, and their future. In all likelihood, his body was dumped somewhere in these fields outside the mine where hundreds of other prisoners also lie buried. This was real. These were real people. These were real lives, and they make us who we are. What's fascinating about Green Cottingham is the fact that he isn't special. He's not well-known. He's not a historical figure of, you know, importance. But that's part of the beauty. He is representative of all of these nameless, faceless people who disappeared during this time frame, who were deemed to be of no value. And then you realize the value isn't in being necessarily important. We all have interesting stories. We all have a life story worth telling. At the end of the Civil War, there were four million freed slaves who lived in absolute poverty 
uneducated, little access to opportunity. We also know that there were an equal number of white Americans in the South, like members of my family, my ancestors, who were also impoverished, illiterate, no access to opportunity. Over the next 75 years, American society performed a miracle of sorts. Those four million whites living in those conditions became 40 million middle-class Americans by the beginning of World War II. That's what made American society the extraordinary superpower that it is today. All of that, though, was done in a way that excluded African Americans, brutalized African Americans at the same time. When you see how people's lives were truly stolen from them, their freedom was taken away, their fathers or husbands were taken away, you can understand how the difficulties and the disparities would persist for much longer than it seems that they should have. Without the appreciation of this history, you descend into fantasies that black people don't deserve equal rights because black people constitutionally, intellectually, morally are not the equals of whites, period. We have to recognize that in these awful, ghastly tales of the brutalization of black people in this country, the motivation for that was profit from small landowners to major corporations. And so at the end of the day, that part of this country's legacy is still with us. When I think about Green Cottingham and what he went through, I think about a quote that comes to mind. It says something like, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And even though Green Cottingham didn't get justice in his day, and that so many thousands of people who were just like Green didn't get their justice. Maybe now, through the telling of this reality and this history, these individuals can receive some measure of justice. At the end of the Civil War, there were four million freed slaves who lived in absolute poverty, uneducated, little access to opportunity. We also know that there were an equal number of white Americans in the South, like members of my family, my ancestors, who were also impoverished, illiterate, no access to opportunity. Over the next 75 years, American society performed a miracle of sorts. Those four million whites living in those conditions became 40 million middle-class Americans by the beginning of World War II. That's what made American society the extraordinary superpower that it is today. All of that, though, was done in a way that excluded African Americans, brutalized African Americans at the same time. When you see how 
people's lives were truly stolen from them. Their freedom was taken away. Their fathers or husbands were taken away. You can understand how the difficulties and the disparities would persist for much longer than it seems that they should have. Without the appreciation of this history, you descend into fantasies that black people don't deserve equal rights because black people constitutionally, intellectually, morally are not the equals of whites, period. We have to recognize that in these awful, ghastly tales of the brutalization of black people in this country, the motivation for that was profit from small landowners to major corporations. And so at the end of the day, that part of this country's legacy is still with us. When I think about Green Cottingham and what he went through, I think about a quote that comes to mind. It says something like, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And even though Green Cottingham didn't get justice in his day, and that so many thousands of people who were just like Green didn't get their justice, maybe now, through the telling of this reality and this history, these individuals can receive some measure of justice. of slavery by another name. I'm Janice Graham, and we hope that you'll be with us here each Saturday at 10 p.m., that you'll follow us on our social media platforms. We appreciate your support, and we hope that you have benefited from this Listen, Learn, Liberate radio tonight. I'm not going to talk long. Have a good weekend, and we're going to end our broadcast tonight with a preview of what we're going to do on next Saturday night, and that is discuss our own volunteerism, as my good friend Jill Nelson would say, how we volunteer to be slaves. See you next week. Stay with us. Slavery by consent. Next Saturday. And on September 20th, a discussion among scholars with Dr. David E. Eichard and Dr. Tommy J. Curry on the merits of black male feminism. We hope you'll join us then.
We are now located at that moment in time when one, lead, one ruling state is about to give way to another. That the state of Israel is about to replace the United States as the ruling state in the world. When Israel takes over from the United States with that big war which is about to take place and the American economy collapses and the US dollar collapses and all the paper money in the world collapses and this is going to be my lecture next Wednesday inshallah on Islam and the international monetary system. Please come to it. Then we see that transfer of power. Israel takes control of the oil, for example, of the Middle East. When Israel becomes a ruling state in the world, then the Jews will say, the golden age has come again. The prophecy is being fulfilled. But they're being deceived in the grandest and most magnificent deception mankind has ever witnessed. No, this is not the golden age. You have been deceived by Al-Masihud Dajjal. studied any history at all knows that's exactly how World War I took place. Then World War II was fomented between the Zionists, uh, between the German nationalists again and the Brits to bring us in and in World War II Israel was to be born. And the Zionists were given power. So since the first two wars came off, just exactly as that letter said, and that letter used to hang right in the British Museum Library until 1977 when Baron Rothschild became a director. And as soon as he was on the board of directors, that letter disappeared from the library. Immediately. But since that letter so clearly delineated the first two world wars, I think we have to look at it seriously and take it to heart when it says in there so clearly that the third world war will be fomented between the Zionists and Islam. Does anybody see that materializing today? Every place we look, we can see it happening. And we can see the power they have here in this country to run things and to pull the nastiest little scams and America believes that. Because they don't realize who it is that owns the newspapers. They don't realize who it is that owns the television. And sometimes they don't care. As long as there's going to be football on the Monday night, and I got beer at hand. That's all that counts. Well, there. 
We have figured it out. Go back to bed, America. Your government has figured out how it all transpired. Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control again. Here, here's American Gladiators. Watch this. Shut up. Go back to bed, America. Here is American Gladiators. Here is 56 channels of it. Watch these pituary retards bang their fucking skulls together and congratulate you on living in the land of freedom. Here you go, America. You are free to do as we tell you. You are free to do as we tell you. Okay. We say we've got freedom of press in this country. And some folks have said that uh, you've got freedom of press as long as you own it. Well, who owns the media? And when I say that, not, I, I mean it not literally, but as far as who controls the information that goes out in the media. An example, NBC is owned by General Electric. And General Electric is one of the top ten, if not top five, defense contractors. Is NBC going to expose a news story that might in some way impede a contract negotiation which can mean a lot of money for General Electric? I don't think so. So the point here is that we have elected officials, both Republicans and Republicans, that cater to who? Certainly not the common people. We don't have the huge amounts of money to contribute to their election campaigns. The people that contribute the most amount of money are the corporations. And so that uh, representative or senator is going to do what is going to be in the best interest of those corporations. So if the corporations are controlling and influencing our elected officials, we must also take a look at the mainstream media. Who pays the bulk of the advertising dollars that keep the mainstream network news going? <laughs> These are the major corporations. So what we have now is we have corporate control of elected officials, corporate control of the media, and this is why some people are now calling it the corporate Borg, because they have assimilated several different areas of our entire society. The corporations control agriculture, technology, manufacturing, industry, education, communication. They control our elected officials. This is not a government of, by, and for the people. It is a government of, by, and for the corporation. And by definition, when business controls government, that is inescapably fascism. And then if the global currency crisis unfolds, then inevitably you get, uh, I guess, an alignment under a, a global world government, uh, a new global currency, um, and a new world order. Uh, so we may be moving towards that. It's impossible to predict the time when confidence will be lost, but it can come quickly. Resorting to buying other paper currencies will not be of much help. When the dollar crashes, most likely the purchasing power of all currencies, since all currencies hold dollars as a reserve, will go down as well. This means that dollars and other currencies will go into buying consumer items, precious metals, and other physical properties. Consumer prices will soar as well as interest rates. The central bank will lose control, and the more they inflate, the worse the confidence becomes. The interest rates will respond to these efforts by rising sharply. If the Fed tries to reverse the run on the dollar, interest rates will also soar, and the pain on American citizens will be of such proportion that political chaos will result. Either scenario leads to political and social chaos, the third event, and the most dangerous. With no ability of the federal government to fund its commitments, international and domestic major changes will occur in our system. The social unrest will elicit cries for government to exert unusual force to head off a complete breakdown of law and order. The ultimate trap will be set 
through a system of government, claiming to protect a free society. If more power and police authority are not given to the federal government, it will be argued that only anarchy will result. If more government policing power is given, it will mean a lethal threat to civil liberty. Already, we have permitted the notion that a single person, the Attorney General or the President, can decide who is an enemy combatant, thus denying that individual the right of habeas corpus, permitting indefinite detentions without charges made. This attitude towards civil liberties has changed significantly since the fear built around 9-11. Yes, I know, declaring one an enemy combatant is reserved only for the radical Muslims engaged in terrorism against the United States. To be reassured by this reasoning is quite dangerous and naive. Logic should not lead us to equate suspects with terrorists and include American citizens. And yet, this has already been set by precedent. Under difficult circumstances, our political leaders will not be hesitant to use these powers to maintain order. Tragically, the people may even demand it. We are rapidly moving toward a dangerous time in our history. Society as we know it is vulnerable to political and social unrest. This impending crisis comes as a consequence of our flawed foreign <coughs> and domestic economic policies. A silly notion about money, ignorance about central banking, and ignoring the onerous power and mischief of out-of-control intelligence agencies. Our unsustainable welfare state and a willingness to sacrifice privacy and civil liberties in an attempt to achieve safety and security from an inept government. Dangerous times indeed. What can be done about it? Must we wait for the inevitable and expect to restore our liberties in a street fight against the overwhelming power of the state? Not a good option. The only way that we, we can prevent blood from running in the streets is to offer a better idea of the proper role of government in a society that desires first and foremost liberty. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there, the choice I leave to you. Well, you know, and what I do is give people like you hugs. What you need is a hug. 
for tuning in tonight. I'm Janice Graham. If it's Saturday at 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. Next Saturday, join us with Window Potter. Get us to the Thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We hope that you'll join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. To contact us, email us at ocginfo at ourcommonground.com and visit our website, ourcommonground.com. Join us on Facebook and Twitter at Janice OCG, and I'll be listening for you. We are living in a nation faced with the possibility of war on multiple mental and physical levels. We got black wars against the police. We still got crack wars in the streets. Unemployment at its peak. Overcrowded cells in present day hell. Wars of Jews against Muslims over whether a created state is real. Wars over Western with Saddam. American politicians arguing over the difference between smart and dirty bombs instead of smart children in dirty schools. I feel like it's me against the world and I'm starting to get ill without even thinking of Kim Jong. Though North Korea does have the world turning up on its axis right now. With these signs of the time in mind, I wake up every day asking myself one question. And it takes me no less than 24 agonizing hours to answer. Am I going to die today? I said, am I going to die today? I don't even bother watching my back anymore because I might get killed from the side today. Or maybe they get me in nuclear with bombs dropping from the sky today. Or maybe some religious fanatic is going to blow my behind up in a train station after deciding he wants to get closer to paradise today. Hell, I got to wonder if some insane and depressed pilot whose wife just cheated on him and ran away with the kids is going to fly today. Right into the 13th floor of my building where I just called my wife to tell her I got to rise and pay. Or am I going to get hit on some DWB while driving on I-95 today? Or maybe some crooked cop's going to decide that so no good nigga's mom's got to cry today? All this while wondering if Bush is going to play chess if I lie today? Why today? Instead of thinking about all that today, I think I'm just going to lose myself in the movement. The moment I own it, because it might be time to go. It only takes one shot for cops to release my soul. Because our community stopped by filthy 5 so. So I decided that I'm going to fight today. Because there's always just enough time left to be right today. 
easy I got kids looking up to me to take a stand against wars of Korea, Iraq, and Afghanistan today So I gotta fight for the world to be safe for we And this is also personal because I don't want my child to see my face next to the definition of complacency I'm gonna fight this BS system with all of my might today Because it's true that tomorrow will never die But I might today In a world where too many visionaries have become so hopeless that they're losing their sight today. And so many pedophiles and perverted priests out there that I gotta worry about whether my sons and daughters are gonna stay tight today. While Bush gives the rich tax cuts and the poor act cuts on educational spending, my students are depending on me to do what's right today. Looking down at the end of the tunnel, I woke up seeing the light today. Cause get this, nations may blow up entire other nations out of spite today. And though I got my cell phone on, I may not have enough time to call my mom to say goodbye today. Y'all may say I'm paranoid today, but inhaling historical truths has got me high today. So now I'm looking for heroines and heroes to help me stop our plight today. I'm even wondering if all the secondhand smoke finally gave me cancer today. So I called 911 for emergency assistance, but Bin Laden answered today. See, I just walked around thinking something's gonna get me. And I wonder why the hell you never ponder if you're coming with me. So you just got to forgive me because I'm just recounting some of the signs of the times that we live in. Because if ignorance is bliss, I know some of y'all forgot the hell we done been in. Got me wondering if God's really gonna be forgiven for all of our sinning. Like killing each other in the name of religion. I don't know about y'all, but I'm gonna fight and never give in. So if I die before I lay my head to sleep today, I just pray to God my soul to keep today. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.